Gorilla Healer presents Farms Not Farms podcast, season two, sponsored by buildthesoil.com. Sir. What's up? Great to see you. Yeah, likewise, man. It's been a while. Welcome to the Farms Not Farms podcast. I'm here today with a very special guest. And I say that all the time, but really one of the uh, one of my favorite reasons why I do this podcast is because I get to celebrate people I admire and learn from people who are leading the way. And so, Kayvon, I, I really want you, if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself, because I feel like you have uh, a, a pretty long list of accolades. So you're probably the best person to introduce yourself. And then we'll get into some uh, some questions, because I really... I want to open up a window into who you are and what you're contributing to our world. So right. thank you for being here. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, my name's uh, Kayvon Kalabari. I've been in the drug policy space for almost 20 years now in Denver. Uh, got involved initially with cannabis policy reform through Denver's decrim ballot effort in 2005, mm -hmm. which we passed. I kind of color myself the the uh, first volunteer in the modern cannabis movement here in Colorado, you know, it was that group of folks that ultimately led to uh, the uh, legalization ultimately in Colorado. Um, you know, as a part of that, I was, uh, I had gone on from being an activist to an operator. In 2009, I started uh, with a couple partners, Denver Relief, which was one of the first uh, cannabis businesses in Colorado. And we ended up- A very good one. Yeah, uh, we saw you in there a couple times. Um, uh, ended up selling that business to uh, Willie Nelson and Willie's Reserve. It was their first grow in the United States. And then we sold our retail to Terrapin Care Station in 2016. Um, mm -hmm. But in between, you know, being involved in the advocacy and, and selling that business, we got involved with Denver Relief Consulting and, and founded that back in 2011. And that's really where I think I made uh, most of my headway in um, you know, nationwide in, in the cannabis movement. I, I was really the leader of our, our technical writing. So, you know, most of these licenses issued in other states are um, awarded on a limited license basis. So in Illinois, for example, there were 21 licenses to grow cannabis in the entire state of Illinois. Yeah. And I wrote uh, five of the winning applications. So uh, wow. I did that, you know, in 15 different states, DC, Puerto Rico, Canada, um, you know, sat on the board of groups like the National Cannabis Industry Association, the Minority Cannabis Business Association, the latter of those being very important because I always, you know, when I started in the industry as an advocate, I wanted this to be a different industry, not just another one. You know, unfortunately, I think a lot of it has gone the way of most other industries and it's controlled by the same people, the same kind of money. Um, but it was a big part of, you know, taking a company public and seeing the extractive side of capitalism in, in cannabis. Um, I've been a, an owner in small mom and pops and, and everything in between. So they're really grateful for my time in the cannabis industry. I learned a lot. I think we accomplished a lot. Uh, but about two years ago, I left uh, the industry uh, pretty fully. I still have my ownership interests, but I don't participate in the day-to-day -day anymore. I adopted two young girls uh, last year. Uh, during wow. Mazel tov. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Co-parent an 89-year-old woman, uh, so I kind of I'm kind of married to an 89-year-old woman. Wow! Uh, 
and started investing in uh, Trinidad, Colorado and Raton, New Mexico. They, they share the, the border there between Colorado and New Mexico. Oh. And, and really got getting involved in the, the shared economy movement. So my pizzeria is Sexy Pizza, which we founded in 2008. Uh, that was born out of the cannabis movement. Uh, we converted into an employee-owned company last year as well during the pandemic, um, along with our amazing host of benefits. You know, if you if you work at Sexy Pizza, you're getting free health, dental, vision insurance, free mental health care, uh, PTO, retirement plan matches, down payment assistance for a house purchase, free meals, profit sharing, and employee ownership now. And we're really proud of what we've been able to build there. So trying to take this employee ownership movement, this worker cooperative movement down to Trinidad, and also look at really uh, unique housing options for folks. Uh, being one of the founders of the tiny house villages here in Denver uh, that support folks uh, getting off the streets. I was homeless myself when I started my entrepreneurial career uh, 15 years ago and, you know, retired today, even though I, I still work 18 hours a day. Um, I see what entrepreneurship and, and kind of that uh, sole proprietorship can do for folks and their happiness and their sustenance. And I want to teach others how to be entrepreneurs as much as possible and, and afford as many home ownership opportunities to people as much as possible the rest of the days that I have. Well, I mean, there's, there's everything served with a thank you. And I don't know how much more that you could be thanked in, aside from just experiencing joy throughout your life. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, you, you are, uh, you know, you're, you're an inspiration through your own glow and the things that you love you know, that drive you, that you're passionate about and that you're choosing to implement in our world as, as the wisdom of Kayvon and wherever you're learning from, you know, that it, it, it's, 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 so, you know, I like to look at who's, who the, who are the luminaries in our society? Because there's so many people who are put on pedestals or put in the light, let's just say. And, you know, we're all equals, so to speak. So those with the spotlight on them, it, it, it doesn't always equal um, goodness or greatness in terms of the holistic humanity, uh, you know, um, sector. And I feel like you're everything you just spoke to, you know, is speaking my language and I want to know more about and I imagine that there's, you know, people out here just just I imagine you you know this too, who will benefit and who want to know what to do, how to do it. You know, I, I, first and foremost, what gave you the insight to create the format for Sexy Pizza, whereas employees have such high uh, are, are so well cared for and, you know you know, it didn't start that way, right? We, we just celebrated our 13th anniversary and we started as a- Congratulations. Thank you, yeah. We started as a single shop with uh, no, no pizza making experience and no business experience, right? It was <laughs> building the plane as we're flying it kind of thing. And, and even with one shop, def, you know, with two, we were really unable to, I think, offer the benefits that we would have liked to keep people around. The service industry, as you know, doesn't generally pay well doesn't offer benefits. That's where a lot of folks are really taken advantage of. Um, and, you know, those are the lessons that we learned was how do, how do you maximize the bottom line, right? Like, how do you do that? That's what you hear from people that, you know, tell you how to run a, a successful business. They, they, they determine what is a success and what isn't by that bottom line. And I operated in the same capacity the first few years of Sexy Pizza. That's what it was about, was creating a bottom line and trying to make it bigger. 
But the further I got into it, and especially taking a company public in the cannabis space and seeing these massive valuations come out, these, these, these people being made very wealthy, these investors without having really day-to-day -day participation, without being on the ground working and hustling every day, um, I realized that, man, these, we got people making money hand over fist while other people are actually doing the work for them. And it was seeing that firsthand that kind of opened my eyes to a better way. And then it was uh, taking on a, a board role with the Center for Community Wealth Building here in Colorado, which encourages worker cooperatives, encourages employee ownership, you know, works with stakeholder um, um, anchor institutions like uh, universities and hospitals and municipalities and schools saying, how do we get them to hire worker cooperatives for their valet service, for their food service, for their janitorial, for all that, instead of these big Uber corporate companies. Um, but just being around the people that work in the shared economy space uh, taught me that we need to do better. And that was really my goal um, in, in uh, being a part of that was to surround myself with other people who could challenge me and my, my ideas that I grew up with around how to run a business. And when we got to four stores, all of a sudden we're realizing that our profit margins were there to really start offering these benefits. And a lot of people say, well, man, I mean, you're, you're giving this free health, dental and vision, you're giving all these benefits. I mean, are you even making profit? What we found is that the more that we offered our employees, the more that we got back, right? The better our bottom line got, the better our customer service got, and man, the better our retention got. You know, if, if I look at what Chipotle or, you know, any fast casual restaurant, what they have as far as a turnover rate in the restaurant industry, it's like 100%. We're talking like every position turning over once a year. And guess what our retention rate was one year before employee ownership, just with the host of benefits that we offer. It was 21, 21%. 21%. 21%. That's, that's, that's humongous, though. People are sticking around, right? We have folks that have been with us for over a decade. We have, you know, managers that started as, you know, line cooks that now own their own home and, and are buying new cars and then are saving for retirement and are starting a family. And when they realize that this could be a career and that we care about them and that they have participation in the management of the company, that they have a voice in that company, I mean, it just builds a relationship that is that is really strong, that is really valuable, and that's enduring. You know, we I don't feel we're a fly-by-night restaurant like most are. I feel like this is something that we can sustain long-term, and I, I think our employees are starting to buy into that too. So if you're a company and you care about others and you want to represent that value with the integrity of your company's um you know, um, dealings and, and business, how do you begin that process of, of, uh, you know, going up the path for creating all of these channels of uh, nourishment for those contributing to the success of the organization? You know, it's what I found when I got into this kind of shared economy space was, when you start showing an interest and you want to talk to other people who have an, an employee-owned company already, who have a worker cooperative already, they are more than willing to share all of their knowledge and wisdom with you, right? Uh, and I, I want to offer myself uh, self up as someone who does the same. I take calls all the time from folks who say, man, I see what you guys are doing at Sexy Pizza. How can I learn how to do that for my company? And I'm going to take that call every time. And once you start digging in, you know, you are like, the company you keep, you know, that, that, that is a, uh, that's been my, really my, my testament to my success. 
since my start, I'm a minority owner in all my businesses, right? I rely on other people, their skill sets, um, how they um, complement what I have and how I complement what they do. Um, and it's really about opening the doors to having very transparent, frank conversations with everybody and building that expectation uh, in with your workers and with your business partners. You know, I think most workers in the hospitality space think that if they speak up and say, I don't think this is right to their boss, I think they're probably worried about losing their job. And we yeah. don't have that environment. You know, we welcome those conversations because who knows best, um, you know, where something can be improved upon or how something can become more efficient or um, where we're really dropping the ball. Um, how We're better to find out those things by asking the people that are working in those things every, every single day. For sure. And, so I, I think it's just, it's, it's building that trust first and it does take, take some time. It doesn't happen overnight. We've been talking employee ownership at Sexy Pizza for two years now, you mm -hmm. know, and we finally just executed on it last year because I think our ownership felt comfortable and we talked with employees enough to understand that they would find value in that too. So, you know, it's, it's just about opening the door and, and taking off the, you know, the, the secrecy, taking, taking out this, this part of the business that, you know, was always kind of held secret. Um, to employees, you know, we, we have no secrets. You want to look at our books. You want to come in and sit down with us and, and you want to see how much profit the company's making and where we're spending money and who's getting paid what, come on in. We'll show you. Um, because I think the more that employees understand um, the nuances, the details, um, all the, the things that go into running a business, it takes out the mystery of it. You know, I'm sure when I was made, when I had one or two pizzerias that I was rolling in money, you know, and if they saw the books, they would see that, man, for the first six years of starting Sexy Pizza, we didn't pay ourselves shit. I didn't, I didn't pay myself anything uh, for six or seven years uh, starting that company. So it's incredibly um, important for us to just be transparent and authentic in how we have relationships and conversations with our employees. And I think the rest really, really does happen naturally. For sure. And that's uh, amazing. And I, I, the, the question that comes to mind is, do you have to be financially secure and financially independent before starting this kind of employee owned business to share the profits in that kind of way? Does, or is that something that, you know, a small business has the ability to do? You know, as I kind of referenced earlier, I think, you know, with one or two stores, it was hard for us to offer the kind of benefits that we ultimately ended up providing we needed that scale you know that three, yeah. three or four shops and our fifth coming to dad before we could really feel good doing all that um and it's not cheap i mean to set up a, a stock ownership plan like we have at sexy pizza you know we ended up paying lawyers and these employee ownership consults like 35 to fifty thousand dollars to do it so it's not cheap so this is where i'm, I'm really hoping that the you know state government that our municipalities our economic development offices that they can come to the table and help some of these businesses that want to convert um, to yeah. do that in a less expensive way um, but i should also note you know i think stock ownership plans are a little bit more expensive like we have to set up because they have to abide by you know securities um, regulations you know at the federal level so they, they're setting up like real real deal stock plans and, and have an ownership in the company amongst a lot of people. And there's a lot of regulations around that. But what you can do uh, much less expensively and in a way that's really uh, much more democratic in the way that they're managed are worker cooperatives. You know, that it doesn't matter if you're a CEO or you're the janitor, one person, one vote. You know, it doesn't matter what you get paid. Um, you have an equal say in the management of that company. And we're starting to see worker cooperatives really blossom, uh, especially in communities that aren't flush with cash. 
Um, but there's a lot of stuff in between that you can do as well, like profit sharing. You know, it doesn't cost you anything except the money that you're dishing out to have some sort of profit sharing plan. And how we've done it at Sexy Pizza for our managers and assistant managers is to say, if you hold food costs to this number or below, we're going to give you a bump. If, if you hold labor costs to this or below, we're going to give you a bump. If you hold this other, you know, controllable expense below this threshold, you're going to get a bonus. Um, because if the company is making more money, why should that not be passed on to our employees? It gives them a benefit to make sure that those details are, are really uh, adhered to, you know, that they're paying attention to them. They buy into it. They have ownership because they know the better that they do on these controllable expenses, the more money they're going to make at the end of the day. And we have GMs that are making 20 to 30,000 30, extra dollars a year um, just by making sure that these numbers stay in line. So I think there's a lot of ways to skin the cat with regard to how you engage employees and invite them into ownership. Uh, and it doesn't have to be expensive, but it certainly can be. Fair enough. Well, thank you for taking the initiative to do that and to share that with us today. I'm sure that there's a lot, you know, I, I imagine that uh, there could even be courses on this, though I may very well take you up on the uh, giving you a call to learn more and because uh, I'm really intrigued by it. And definitely for Gorilla Healer, you know, I, I feel called to learn more about that. So I'll just put that there for a moment. And, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about, if we can, the uh, tiny home uh, community that you that you uh, were a part of creating. Would you be so kind? Yeah. And, and really quick, uh, before we uh, leave the employee ownership topic, just two quick resources, if I could. Thank uh, you so much. Yes, I wanted to ask that. I'm, I'm grateful. The Center for Community Wealth Building, which I sit on the board of that I mentioned here in Colorado, great organization, will we'll definitely support these types of conversations if people want to have them. Um, but nationally, the National Center for Employee Ownership, uh, they're based out of the Bay Area. And if you go on their website, I mean, endless content. Um, that can help you explore employee ownership and a shared economy, uh, tons of books that they've written. And they're, they are so open. I mean, you could call them and their president is going to call you back and sit on the phone with you for an hour and a half. Like that's <laughs> they are to get good information out there. So just wanted to throw um, the, Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, the, the tiny home villages started, um, at least my involvement in them, about you know, six years ago when the, the sweeps, you know, the sweeps are when police go and they find people that are sleeping outside and they tell them that you can't be here. You got to move along. And it became really frustrating for myself and faith-based organizations and businesses that cared and service providers and nonprofits and neighbors to see cops say, you got to move along from this spot. People sleeping out in the freezing cold without offering up a place to where they can go. Right. There's a lot of reasons why people don't use our shelter systems. Um, shelters are filthy. Right. There's people who deal with PTSD and other trauma who can't be in those kinds of environments. There's couples or people with kids that get split up because men and women can't go into the same facilities and families can't go in together. There's people yeah. who are, you know, transgender who don't have a, a place or feel comfortable um, going in. There's people with pets or service animals who can't go in. Like there's a myriad of reasons. There's people who work late nights and can't get in before the curfew, you know, and when these places close. So that's why they're out on the streets. So to have police, and I, I slept out on the streets, not just in my own experiences, but to understand better how law enforcement was dealing with folks living on the streets. And I would, this was a zero degree night the last time I did it. 
and cops come up maybe an hour after I went to bed, one in the morning, and they say, you gotta, you gotta move, you can't be here. I'm like, where am I supposed to go? They say, I don't know, but you can't be here. So we'd go around the corner, you pick up all your shit, you settle down, you finally get to sleep again, 3 a.m. rolls around, same cops kicking you saying, you gotta move along, you can't be here. Like not knowing that there's another place to go, these people are telling you that you can't be anywhere only to make you move around the corner and, and do it all over two hours later and then do it all over two hours later and then do it all over two hours later. What kind of damage does that do to somebody's mental health to have that happen all night? How do you expect them to get back on their feet when you're not even letting them get a good night's rest, not bothering anybody sleeping on the sidewalk? So I, I, I started to understand why a lot of folks living on the street have such a blatant disrespect for you know, sanitation and, and trash and where they shit and stuff like that. One, why aren't there public restroom facilities? Why aren't there trash cans where people experiencing homelessness hang out? You know? um, but there's a, there's a complete disregard for them as human beings by law enforcement, by our city, by our public works department. It's no wonder they're frustrated and they're angry and they're not willing to you know, maybe play a little more civilly um, while living on the street. So we got a group together called the Alternative Solutions Advocacy Project about five years ago to say, these sweeps need to stop. We cannot be pushing people away if we don't have an alternative for them to stay um, that's safe, that's secure, that's clean, that's healthy, that's happy. So we were looking at how we can press together as faith-based organizations, businesses, service providers, all these educational institutions to push the city to say, we need to do better here. And one of the projects that ended up coming to fruition was our first tiny home village, beloved community village, which was 11 tiny homes in uh, North Denver. Uh, that were built purely with donated materials, volunteer hours. Um, we ended up getting approval from the city and we ended up housing folks. And we started to see that as soon as we started housing them in these tiny homes with no rent required and no term limits on how long they could be there, that guess what these people did? They got jobs. They started going back to school. They started getting their life together. And these are self-governed villages. So these people have an obligation to themselves and others to do chores on the site, to attend weekly meetings with their other villagers, to learn how to reintegrate into society, to learn how to collaborate again and to be human again. And we started seeing such great success and Denver University did some studies and they're like, man, this is really working. And not only is it working, we are spending less money at our villages, building a home for somebody and maintaining them in that home for two years for less money than the city spends per person living on the streets in police contact, emergency room visits, cleaning up, all that stuff. So now the city's getting pressured saying, if this is cheaper and having a better outcome, why are we not investing in it? So we're finally getting city money. We're finally getting you know, more financial support. We went from a $50,000 organization three years ago to I think our budget's like $2 million this year. And wow. we have two villages and a third on the way. Our second one's dedicated to women, both cis and trans, who have been victims of violence on the streets. Our third one's going to be focused on refugees and immigrants. Um, and then beyond that, we also got approval to manage these safe outdoor spaces, uh, which we have two of in Denver, and we're opening a third and a fourth this year. And what those are, are big heated igloo tents that allow people to have privacy and security in something that's temporary, right, for three to six months, especially during the cold months. And the city's paying for that now, too. So, you know, we, we just keep growing this project bigger and they, they just keep starting to see that, man, we're taking less money than the city's spending on not fixing the problem. 
and we're actually getting people into a safe and secure spot where they can rebuild their lives and get pushed on to more permanent housing. So I really see this model working. Um, it, it's proven itself not only in Denver, but in other places in the country. And I think we're starting to see not just big cities, but smaller cities start to adopt things like tiny home villages and these, these different ways of living because everybody on this planet has a different expectation for what is a, what is a quality of life household? You know, how can I be safe, happy, and healthy? I don't need a 5,000 square foot home. I have enough money for a 5,000 square foot home. Mine's 1,200 square feet here in Denver, you know? And I don't, I don't need much. Um, I, again, I've lived in a tent. I've lived in a truck. I've lived on floors behind couches around Denver. Um, I'm comfortable with that. And there's a lot of people who are comfortable with less as well. And I think we need to start accommodating that and how we're talking about paying for and building housing uh, in this country. You know, that's you're a prime example of being your own solution and in fact evolve, uh, evolving that to being your own superhero and truly now bringing everything that you perhaps, you know, this is just my own intuition saying, or, or let me speak for myself, you know, when I was homeless or when I when I have been pain, I'm, you know, you want to get out of it and you want you, you think of all of these uh, potentials, you know, and um who are we to, uh, you know, sell ourselves and everybody else short to, to not bring that to the world? My friend Bruce B always says, if you want it, if you want to see it, bring it, you know. And so that's like, you know, so, so many of us are looking for, um, for, for help and, and many of us need it. And many of us also have the ability to meet our prayers halfway. And so, you know. I'm, I'm just, uh, again, illuminated and, and, and inspired by everything that you're doing and, and all of your passions, all the things that you believe in that you're choosing to to touch and to, to well, let's just say to connect with in, 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 uh, in the name of optimization. And um, for me, like this, this is exactly, you know, the epitome of why I, I, I do this podcast, because I want to show our world more reasons to care, more options to, uh, you know, to, to, to consider as our ability to uh, contribute and respond to our abilities. Um, and what, what do you, you know, with, with, with all of this and, and everything that you're doing, all the knowledge that you've retained and applied as wisdom, you then began to um, go towards politics correct? Yeah, and, and a lot of my political involvement was really centered in that conversation around homelessness and housing. You know, when I, I ran for city council in 2015, um, late entry, 45 days before the election, was not expecting to win, but was expecting to force some level of conversation around homelessness, housing, and drug policy reform. And what I found, like, this is a great example of where we were at as a city in Denver in 2015. I was participating in a forum with like 15 other candidates at a church in Northwest Denver. And somebody asked the question about, we had just built this jail in downtown Denver, this, the, the new jail on Colfax. And the question was, even though the jail was built just last year, it's already full, it's over capacity do you think that the city should pony up more money to expand it? And out of those 15 candidates, I was the only one that said, fuck no. <laughs> like, 
what are most people doing in this jail in Denver? Why are they there? They're for nonviolent drug, uh, for, for nonviolent drug reasons. They're in there for sex work. They're in there for all these issues that, in my opinion, are matters of public health, not matters mm. of criminality, right? Um, we should not be investing in housing through jail. Housing somebody in jail or prison is three to five times more expensive than it is to subsidize and provide housing for them outside of jail. Providing mental health services, substance abuse services, family support are all a heck of a lot cheaper outside of jail. What do you do when you throw a nonviolent drug offender into jail? You turn them into a, life crim a lifetime criminal. You make it such that they have to turn to crime to pay because they can't compete for jobs in a competitive job market because they can't compete for housing in, in a competitive housing market. I like to frame it as imagine how people think of you when you get out of jail. They are untrusting of you. They There's skepticism about your honesty, your integrity. They're probably not very willing to help you. But what if you just went in for drugs? Think about if we view drugs as a health issue and how do we think about and treat people who get out of the hospital? We treat them with compassion, with care, with how can I help you? Hey, do you need anything? And it's all about how we frame it. And I think if, and, and not all people who use drugs are addicted or need help, right? I've been using cannabis every day since I was 15 years old. I don't need help for it, <laughs> but it was illegal at one point, right? I use psychedelics that are not legal today. I shouldn't be going to jail for it. I use it spiritually. I use it for my mental health. I use it for all these reasons. But the second I get thrown in jail, all of a sudden I get these barriers put up. So I just wanted to illuminate some of these conversations running for council and, and came in fifth out of five candidates. Again, didn't expect to win, but I got 11,000 people to vote for me, you know, and, and that not only built, um, you know, some, some traction on some of those conversations, it gave me a little bigger podium and pedestal. Um, to, to talk about the things that matter. Um, and then eventually I ended up running for mayor in 2019 and uh, of Denver. And I, I was, you know, for the first campaign financer period out raising the, the two-term incumbent mayor um, because, you know, we're at a time in our country where this neoliberal bullshit um, is over. This, this time needs to end. You know, it's neoliberalism, this, this fake, fake, phony, progressive Democrat BS that led to people like Donald Trump getting elected. You know, don't tell me you care about me and then stab me in the back. That's what a Joe Biden type an Obama, uh, uh, a Bill Clinton, a Hillary Rodham Clinton type people do. They're not good people. They're no better than the other side. They tell you that they are and we believe them. But then they pass the same freaking policies that these Republicans do that we scathe and, and loathe so much. So we need to get beyond all that and start pushing for, you know, this conversation about what are human rights? What are things that we are all um, really um, obligated to by living on this planet. And to me, that's housing, that's healthcare. That's talk health that, talk. That's education, that's the internet. You know, there are parts of this world that don't have the internet still. Like how far behind are they falling and just connectivity to others in the planet, on the planet. So, you know, until we start pushing further, like universal basic incomes and things like that, if we're not going to go ahead and deal with the wealth gap and we're going to let people like Bezos rape this country and pillage it and take all the money and, 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 and make his empire off of $15 an hour workers, um, then we should be talking about universal basic income and make sure that people that are working at McDonald's making 12 bucks an hour are given an additional $10 an hour so they can pay for a baseline apartment in Denver, Colorado.
right? Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to run as a business person because I think we often get thrown under the bus. I had even, you know, really progressive, liberal, like burn it all down, socially progressive folks tell me, Kayvon, you're a business owner, you're part of the problem. I'm like, you just threw like 70 million people in this country under the bus, you know, like small business owners are the lifeblood of this country. And we deserve to give them all the benefits that these major corporations have. Um, and I, I also think it's important for me as a business owner to say, I don't want the government to solve all my problems. You know, mm. I'm a government person too. It, it's incumbent on me as a business owner, as a private citizen to behave better, right? And to take care of our employees and to get engaged in my community and to, to, to help progress these new ideas in society and to partner with people in doing so. Because the day that we start hoping that the government's gonna take care of everything for us, man, we're in a lot of trouble, right? We have to take some ownership to our problems and start solving them locally in the communities that we live and work in. I think that's what some people's hesitance about a universal basic income is that the sense of dependency that it might bring to expect this. And what do you have to say to that? So take Denver, for example, where the uh, housing, uh, the, the area median income for Denver is $64,000 a year. That's a single person making $64,000 a year. So that means that affordable housing, which is built in Denver, and I, I put it in air quotes, affordable housing is at 80% of that level. So $56,000 a year is how much you need to qualify for affordable housing in Denver. Well, what about the person that's making Colorado minimum wage or Denver minimum wage even, $15 an hour? That's $30,000 a year. That's half of what you need to qualify for affordable housing as a single person. So what does that person do? They have to go work two minimum wage jobs, work 80 hours a week, right? What does that lead to? That leads to less time with their family and their kids. We all know that doesn't end well when parents can't spend time, valuable time with their kids. What happens when you're working 80 hours a week? Are you not pissed off? Are you not frustrated? Are you not maybe starting to deal with some alcohol dependency, some addiction issues, some mental health issues? and seeing that spiral out of control, which then requires even more money from the government. Right now, the government's paying for this person's kid, right, in daycare or some other subsidy. They're paying for their, their mental health that's strolling out of control. They're you know, housing them when they go to jail. Why can't we just give these people this money on the front end so they don't have to work two jobs, so they can take care of their family, take care of their mental health, take care of their physical health? I see it as harm reduction. I see us spending less money if we just pay people directly, not just like paying them to not work, right? We're saying you still need a job, but we're gonna fill that gap in between what you make and what it actually costs to have a, a reasonable quality of life wherever you live on this. Planet. Is that welfare? Sure, everything's welfare. If, if, if you think that, you know, I'm on welfare, I'm a wealthy guy and I'm on welfare, are you kidding me? I get tax breaks, I'm driving on city streets, you know, I'm, I'm paying taxes and getting benefits from the government all day long. People that think that they're not getting any value from the government. So that's just semantics in a sense of being on welfare versus being in the program of welfare and getting getting a stipend or getting money from the government in that way. That's what you're saying? The largest welfare recipient in on the planet is the richest man on the planet, Jeff Bezos. There getting is the breaks, not paying. That's what you mean. No person who gets more financial benefit from governments around this world than that man. And as soon as we start uh, calling corporate welfare what it is, corporate welfare, 
um, I think we start to frame that differently. I don't blame folks who don't have money or have a shitty job for taking money from the government. They need it so that their condition doesn't get worse, so that me yeah. as a taxpayer doesn't have to pay more money in perpetuity for them to have any semblance of a quality of life. Yeah. Um, welfare, welfare is a terrible word. It's, 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 these are social programs that okay. everybody takes advantage of in a different way. There is nobody in this country that doesn't participate in some kind of social welfare program, social assistance program, or benefits taxpayers and government subsidies or monies. There's no person in that. We just all do it in a different way. And I think that's really important to understand. It's not people take welfare and people don't. Like everybody takes something from the government and we need to acknowledge that and we need to make it more equitable who's getting what and why and making sure that the people with the most need get what they need. Because honest to God, what they need is less than we're dishing out to someone like Bezos, Buffett, Gates, Musk, all those people on a minute per minute basis, let alone an annual basis, right? Bezos makes more in an hour than I think all of his employees in the United States make in a year. That's real. <laughs> It's called the Alice in Wonderland syndrome in my mind. It's like on one side of it and saying, hey, you, you are poor and less than because you're taking a handout from the government to be able to live and 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 feed your kids and get milk and cheese and eggs and, 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 a, and, a, and an apartment or a home. And on the other side of the mirror, it's the people saying, I'm going to save a ridiculous amount of money or however much money that I can from the government so that I can basically get that handout so that I don't have to give it to the government and retain, you know, basically take it back, you know, because that they want it. And so it's basically the handout that you're speaking of on both sides of the mirror. And that's what I'm, what I'm understanding. And, and I, and I'm grateful for you opening up a window into the accountability that we all have the ability to take when we are reflecting on how we're benefiting from the government. And obviously some might say, okay, I'm paying taxes so I can benefit from that. The people that aren't paying taxes shouldn't, though our taxes, in my opinion, are well served going to the people that aren't able to help themselves because any one of us at any given time might be in pain or might be in an emergency, might be in a situation we need help. And what are we gonna want? What are we gonna need? What are we gonna pray for? And so when we have the ability to be the solution in that way and share that and spread that love with somebody else, Man, that's that's a miracle. We're we are revealing God, we're revealing Creator in 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 this way in our world. And so, thank you. You like really, I'm I'm just so uh, moved by everything that you're doing and the way that you're living, the way that you're showing up. And you know, I, I'm not here sitting saying you're a perfect person. I'm sure that you're a human being like everybody else. Yet you are you know, you're making a contribution. You, when I walk around and, and I did a social experiment, and I asked people, what's your contribution to our world? Most people were stumped. And I feel like you have a long list. And uh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm stoked that you're here and I get to share this time with you. And we get to, uh, you know, be a team of superheroes together in our own way for who we are and how we want to show up in the world. And, 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 you know, be it in the tiniest form of a bug or a plant or to the biggest form of a human or a giraffe or an elephant, whatever it is, life is so important, especially to each and every one of us. And that's what I'm gathering from you is the systemic holistic addressment of everybody being in a, in a, in a healing state, in a wealthier state, in a healthier state is less expensive, less for all of us. 
while we get a better quality of life and grow this garden of life in a, in a, in a more positive way. And that's, is, that's what I'm getting from you. Okay, Vaughn, is there anything that you would like the people to know or, or anything at all? If you're ever like walking around or driving around and you're like, man, I just really wish people would know this, you know, this is a great time to, uh, to, to let them in. I mean, I think a lot of it is behavior and in, in having pride in doing good things. You mentioned earlier, you know, maybe the wrong people are up on the podium and at the pedestal um, telling us how we should live our lives. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of our examples of how to behave and operate in this world um, are not the right ones, but they're the ones that are more most confident in themselves and mm-hmm. have the most ego and the, the loudest voice. And it's often the people who are doing the best work on this planet who are the most timid and shy and quiet. And we need those people to serve as examples and to step up and to speak um, more often than they do now. Um, because if we keep letting, you know, celebrities and fucking fake ass athletes and politicians, you know, be the people who are driving how we should be- behave as humans, we're in deep trouble. Um, we need folks that are doing the dirty work, the good work every single day on the ground um, to have their stories told, but we can't rely on people to tell their stories. They need to tell them and they need to be proud of them. And I talk about it all the time and people say, yeah, you got a little, you got a little pretentiousness, a little ego with you, Kevin. I go, yeah, I'm proud of the work that I do. I'm proud of the work that we do, the people that I work with. Um, and I'm going to boast about it because I think my example is better than that person's over there who likes to you know, paint a nice picture and tell people they're doing good, but if you actually dig in, they're not. Um, so I, I think I just wanna you know, encourage people who are doing good things to talk about it more and to build up that confidence in talking about it because the world needs, needs more examples and then collaborate your ass off. Everything I've done and accomplished in this world has been done in the spirit of collaboration and with so many people and I would not be where I am at all um, without everyone around me i'm a testament to them and uh couldn't have done it without them so uh, work together as much as possible thank you really i um i'm so grateful and 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 uh honored to spend this time with you and to share the spread this message of uh of sovereignty and of compassion empathy and um community common unity that we all share as people under the sun and um so thank you again. How can people get in touch with you or find out about you? Is there any is there anything that you put out there for the world that you want people to uh, keep in touch with? You know, I'm pretty transparent and open and share a little bit of everything on Instagram. Uh, so at K Kalatbari is my last name. At K K H A L A T is in Tom, B is in boy, A R I. Um, I also have that K Kalatbari at gmail.com reach out anytime. I love chatting about shared economy work and housing and uh, always happy to take folks, uh, take, take folks inquiries. And if people go to Denver or the surrounding areas and want to get some super sexy pizza, how do they find sexy pizza? Sexy dot pizza. Yes, that is a, uh, a web address, www.sexy.pizza. Four locations in Denver, a fifth opening up in Trinidad, Colorado employee owned and proud of it check it out okay Vaughn, i know some people would be happy if you opened up one in boulder i'm just going to put a little thing in there for the, for them and uh say thank you again so much really keep up the great work and uh keep illuminating yourself because we see you glow and it helps us feel the light and in, in, in ourselves too and with that as always we will oh uh 
definitely subscribe to the Farms Not Farms podcast on Spotify and Apple. Uh, you're welcome to check out all the archived uh, episodes at farmsnotfarms.org. Shout out to buildthesoil.com. And uh, as always, we're going to end off on a note of uh, a really deep, easy, smooth breath of life. This miracle we get to experience together on the count of three. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Farms Not Farms podcast brought to you by Gorilla Healer. If you want to watch the full episode plus behind the scenes footage, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash burntmd and subscribe to the Farms Not Farms podcast on Spotify, Apple and Google podcasts. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, buildasoil.com for all of your organic soil amendment needs. As always, be well.